0: Hello listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I am the host of this program. I remember during Sunday school when I was little. I always remembered enjoying story time when our Sunday school teacher told us about the different people in the Bible. The story of Moses and how he leads the Israel people out of Egypt and splits the Red Sea. The story of Joshua and the fall of Jericho. The story of Joseph, the story of David, and many others. I remember thinking these were some great superheroes from the Bible. We of course can't forget the story of Gideon and his 300 men. With only 300 men, and only with provisions and trumpets, they went to battle and earned victory. I remember wanting to become a soldier when listening to this story. But I also remember thinking these heroes in the Bible had something special that I didn't have, that God called and used them to be such great people. But looking back into the Bible, there was not a single person who had extraordinary strength or powers that was suitable for God to use. This was also the case for Gideon as well. Before the Lord called him, looking at Gideon, he didn't seem like the most courageous and bravest person that could defeat the Baal altars and lead any battles. We'll come back to share more after our first song. From Chapter Six of Judges, where Gideon makes his first appearance, there are a lot of repetitive scenes. As the Israel people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worship other gods, God once again turned them over to the Midianites for seven years. As they suffer in the hands of the Midianites, they cry to God in desperation of his need, and once again, God hears their cry and sends them another judge to save them. But during this time the chosen judge was Gideon. During this time, an angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, and instead of getting prepared to fight against the Midianites, this angel finds Gideon beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from them. But to me, there was something about this scene that caught my attention. It says in Judges chapter 6, verse 11 through 12, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abbey while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon is beating out wheat to make sure they have food supply. But in order to beat wheat, it makes more sense to do it on an open ground. But for some reason, Gideon does it in the winepress. They say that in order to avoid other things from going into the wine, the wine press is usually located in a closed-off area. So from this, I imagine Gideon in an area that no one imagines anyone is in, and Gideon is in a small, tight space beating wheat. Why do you think this was? The Bible says it was to hide it from the Midianites. When the Israel people harvested in their fields, the Midianites and the Amaleks would come and ruin their crops. And when it was time for them to harvest, they would also come and steal all their food and will leave nothing for them. So their desire to want to store food was always very strong. This is probably why Gideon was in the winepress beating wheat. As embarrassed and helpless he felt, Gideon could not help but to hide while doing this. During this time, as he was in hiding finding a way to gather food to survive, the angel of the Lord comes down to him and calls him Mighty Hero. Here are the scriptures of judges chapter 6, verse 12 through sixteen. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you." Sir Gideon replied, "If the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have, and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. The angel that appeared to Gideon came and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you, and tells him to rescue the Israel people from the Midianites. Hearing this, Gideon replies in absolute fear and says, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. Seeing Gideon with such little confidence, the Lord tells him, I will be with you and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. As we all know, Gideon broke down the altar of Baal and Asherah and saved the Israel people from the hands of the Midianites and won a great victory. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is, Fighting Hypocrisy in the Church, Part 2, based on Matthew 18, verse 15-17, through and 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1-13. through I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Francis.
1: So in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, and verse 11. He says, I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. Very key phrase. Calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral. Okay, so we're not supposed to associate, not even eat, with someone who calls himself a Christian, but is having sex outside of marriage. If you're unmarried, having sex, call yourself a Christian. I shouldn't even talk to you. Never eat with you, according to the Bible. If you're having an affair, call yourself a Christian. Unless you're going to turn from that sin, I don't want to associate with you. I will not associate with you if I know it, other than to confront you. Because that's what God tells me to do. And so I'm bound to that. He says, uh, the immoral or the greedy. Guys, this one's a little more difficult, because how do you judge when someone is greedy? And sometimes this is one that we belittle here in Simi Valley and Thousand Oaks, you know. Because aren't we all greedy? You know, aren't we all materialistic? And so it's hard to judge on that one. It's like, when is a person truly greedy, like greedy enough to not associate? You know, I don't know. That's, that's necessarily the whole point of it, to, to say, well, that's the line, you know. But it's more just the attitude of this person's heart. It's all about stuff. You're always just thinking about stuff. You're always just thinking about this earth. The greedy, the idolater. And we're not supposed to associate with those who call themselves Christians yet worship other idols. Or worship other belief systems. It's not okay to say, well, Jesus is one way. And here's another way, here's another way, here's another way. If you're going to do that, call yourself something else, but not a Christian. A slanderer. That means if you say negative things, untrue things about other people, you gossip about other people, then we shouldn't associate with you. That's the pattern of your life. Again, it's not saying that you slipped once. We're all going to do that in different areas. It's talking about the person. This is the pattern of your life. You refuse to repent. This is just what you do. It's who you are. I mean, you guys understand, this is a good thing. It really is. Everything in Scripture is good. It's for our good. I mean, could could you imagine what it would be like if you knew that every time you walked inside the church, that no one in that room slandered you that week? I'd be crazy. Can you imagine how happy I'd be if I walked up here every morning and knew no one spoke negatively about me this week? I mean, what if the church was that type of place where we took slander that seriously that you could walk in and go, you know what, I know no one slanders me here. I mean, the workplace, everywhere else, but not in the church because they take it so seriously that they confront it and they don't even allow people who are slanderers to stay in that place. What a light this place would be. How people would run for a safe place like that. A drunkard. I I recognize some of you, you you, you have some addictions and you struggle with those addictions and you fight those addictions. Some of you, you wake up every morning, you say, Lord, just get me through this day. I don't want to sin against you. I want to fight this thing. You've got people holding you accountable. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're fighting the fight. And I say, praise God for you. You know what? Because I know it's not easy. Uh, I I talk to people all the time with different types of addictions, whether it's whether it's, you know, alcohol, drugs, sexual, whatever it may be. And it's a fight. It's a fight. All of us have our addictions in some area and it's a fight. This is referring to the person, not the person who's fighting, the person who just says, you know what, I'm both. I'm a Christian and I get wasted on the weekends. I'm a Christian and, you know, I'm a drunkard. He says, or a swindler. That's a person who rips other people off. Um, wouldn't that be great to know that, man? If someone, uh, you know, goes to Cornerstone, I can trust his business. He's not going to rip me off, man. Um, and, and if you are, if you have any unfair practices, don't you dare put a fish on your business card and make it look like you're a Christian to get more business. That's just the lamest thing you could do. Um, you're dragging the name of Jesus Christ down with you. Um, you see, you see, this stuff is to protect the church, but it's also to protect the reputation of Jesus Christ. Do you understand something? See, that here's, here's something we don't talk about a whole lot. I call myself a Christian. That's an honor. Whose name did I take when I called myself Christian? I took the very name of Christ. Man, it's, it's not anymore about Francis Chan. I, I, I'm a Christian. I took the name above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And now suddenly I've taken that name for myself. And you guys, that's an honor. That's a sacred thing. And Jesus says, don't call yourself a Christian if you're going to live that type of lifestyle. Don't allow that in the church. Paul was telling the Corinthian church. To see, the Corinthian church was proud because of their immorality. The, the Bible says that there was some immorality going on in the church and they were proud of it. They, they were saying, look, we're an open community. We allow everyone. You know what? You can be a Christian and do whatever you want. See, we're not judgmental. We're tolerant. And Paul says, you're proud of that? This is God's church. And he's saying, I'll have none of that. This is my house. This is my bride. And that's why he's saying, expel. Expel the wicked man from among you. So how do we do this? I believe that scripture outlines this and explains to us the process of how do we expel the immoral person from within the church. And I believe that process is laid out in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to put it on the screen for you in case you don't have your Bible. Now there, and then before I go through this, let me explain that some people, uh, look at Matthew 18 and say they don't believe that this, uh, this is, this applies to all sin. Um, and I, and I can understand because the first part of it says, if your brother sins against you. Now understand there's some ancient manuscripts that don't have the against you in it, but because the, 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 the main ones do. We, we leave it in. If your brother sins against you. So people say, well, this is only a sin if someone is sinning against you. And I agree that that is what this is, is, is referring to. However, I don't see a better pattern of how to confront sin. Um, I think this is such a loving way, because how else do you expel the immoral brother? How else do you get him out of there? Do you just see him sin once and kick him out? No, what, what Matthew 18 explains is it's a loving, loving process. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay, there's a process here, you know, because people are, you know, saying, man, are you going to kick me out? Are you going to kick me out? (laughs) Man, that's that's not what this is saying. There's a process. Man, and it's a loving process. Okay, this is so loving. You can kind of get this because you're going, oh man, this seems harsh, It seems extreme. No way. This is the most loving thing you could do for a person. In fact, this this is Matthew 18, verse 15. Do you know what uh, verse 14 is about? And the stuff before that? It's the parable of the lost sheep. Remember that? That's where Jesus says, hey, which of you, if you have a hundred sheep and one of them strays off, aren't you going to leave the ninety-nine and go after that one? And we look at that passage and go, wow, what a, what a loving passage. You know, like a good shepherd, you'd go after that one that strays away. Well, then in the very next verse, what does it say? So if your brother sins against you, what do you do? You go after him. See, people say, well, that's not loving. To go confront someone on their sin and the Bible's saying, no, it's not loving to leave them alone. You're just going to let them stray? They're like that one sheep that just wandered away from from the flock and you're just going to let them go in their sin? No, if you love him, you go after him and you show him his fault and he goes just between the two of you. It's a private matter. That means if you see someone in the church in sin, don't come running to me. You're supposed to love that person enough to talk to them and show them biblically, look, the Bible says this is wrong. You can't go down this road. And the Bible says that if he listens to you, you win. You've just brought your brother back into the fold. You you just did it. That was the goal. That's the goal of this thing. The goal is not to get rid of people. The goal is to win them back. And he goes, and if he listens to you, you've just won him back. But then it says, if he, he will not listen, then take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He says, if, if you confront this person and they don't listen, bring a couple more people with you. Maybe if three or four of you love on this person, then they'll turn around. You know, in, in the secular world, they, they, they call this intervention, right? It's to get the people that love this person. Let's all circle around him and love him and let him know that you can't go on living this. Even the world does this. He says, in the church, man, can you get a couple of people who love this person and all go to them and show them that it's wrong? Because maybe he'll listen to two or three of you. Maybe several of you in love come to him and tell him how much you just want to see him walk with the Lord again. That'll turn him around. What a loving thing to do. If he refuses to listen to them and tell it to the church. See, if you've gone down the process and you've talked to the person, you've brought some others along and you talk talked to them, then you can tell one of the elders of the church. And as the elders discuss it and go, you know what, this is legitimate, then we're going to bring it before the whole church. And we will name names and say, you know what, this person, we've tried, we're loving him, everything else. Maybe if we all in love just go after this person and say you know what you got to walk away from her you got to walk away from this addiction you got to walk away from that maybe if we all love on him um, maybe then he'll come back maybe then he'll repent of his sin and then the bible says if he refuses to listen even to the church the church leaders the church body he refuses to listen to all that he goes then i believe that's what 1 corinthians 5 is about then you expel the wicked brother from among you now, again, remember the context of this passage, because right after this passage he talks about forgiveness, and talks about how, you know what, you gotta keep forgiving. You gotta go after that lost sheep. But there's a process in there. So it is love. And so let me just say this right now. If you are in this room this morning, and you call yourself a Christian, but you have decided to continue in on in these sins, or any of those sins that we mentioned, you need to know that we love you, and we love you so much that we're willing to ask you to leave. We're so committed to restoring you that we'll even take it to the point of asking you not to come back until you've turned. In fact, if you have your Bibles, go back to 1 Corinthians 5. I want to explain one more passage to you, just two verses. To show you how serious this is, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What, What does that mean? hand this man over to Satan. When you're assembled in a public assembly, these people have refused to repent after everyone's gone after them. At that point, publicly, just say, this person is no longer under Christ, and God, we hand him over to Satan. Now, why would you do that? Well, one, because the Bible says so. But what sense does that make? Okay, why does the Bible say, hand him over to Satan? So that what? Yeah, it's, it's about his salvation. It says, hand this man over Satan so that what? His sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. What's the goal here? The person's salvation, right? You see, the point is, is, is when I say, you know what? This person's been handed over to Satan. And just probably say, God, we're handing him over to Satan. Have Satan have his way with him. And then the whole idea is we no longer associate with them. We no longer eat with them. This person, he or she, goes off in his or her sin, which he or she loves so much that she wasn't willing to let go. She just indulges, 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 indulges. And then at some point, hopefully the hope is that her flesh and these fleshly desires, as she's fulfilled them all, she goes, this isn't that great. I, I miss what I had. I remember the way it used to be when I was a part of the church. I remember what it was like to be close to God. And I gave all that up for this. The hope is that at some point they come to the end of themselves and they go, Man, okay, I want to come back. And then we, with open arms, say, Yeah, come on back. This is what we've been hoping for. This is what we've been praying for. That you've had enough of Satan and you want all of God now. And that Bible says that that leads to salvation. Because the Bible says that the godly sorrow leads to repentance which leads to salvation. Whereas worldly sorrow, it says, leads to death. You see, it's not enough for when you're confronted in your sin to go, yeah, I know it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong, but I'm not going to stop. Wah, 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 That's that's. I, I'm not going to put my arm around you. Seriously. Because that would only lead you to death for me to say, oh, it's okay. You can keep calling yourself a Christian and keep living this type of lifestyle. I'm not helping you. I'm only enabling you and leading you to death, the Bible says, and I, I love you too much to do that. See, I, even though we explain these things, I guarantee you people will walk away from church this weekend and say, they're judgmental, which, yeah, we are. We're supposed to be within the church. The Bible says that. And you're going to say that we're unloving. And to that I respond, no. The truth is is that you are unloving, and you are also very arrogant. Because you believe you have a better way of restoration than what Jesus laid out. You read this and you're not denying what the passages say. You're just saying you have a better way. I mean, unless you can tell me, no, that verse really means this. Go ahead, try. And try to convince yourself that it means something else. I mean, it's black and white. How else do you read it? But you think you have a better way. And the reason why I say that you're unloving is the truth is, is by you not going after these people. And allowing them to have this worldly sorrow and not really bring them to repentance, it says you lead them to death. And the truth is, here's the the bottom line, is you care more about your friendships than you do about your friends. That's what it comes down to. It's selfishness on your part. You're more concerned about your friendship than you are about your friend. You can't imagine not having that person as your friend. It's selfish. You, You can't imagine them looking down on you. Or thinking that you're judging them or doing something bad to them. You can't handle that. And so rather than doing the right thing that would lead them to life, you're going to do the easy thing that will help you keep your friendship, even if it means your friend goes to hell. And if you want to call that loving, so be it. But to me, I say that's evil, that's self-centered, it's arrogant, and it's very unloving. You guys, this is a topic that is tough to talk about, obviously. But it's also something that's very dear to my heart. And the reason is, is over these last 13 years, there have been times when I've had to look at some of my friends, people that I love, I mean really love, not acquaintances, not just some guy that stepped into the church, some of my absolute best friends that I've been friends with for over 10 years. And I've had to look them in the eye over dinner and say, This is our last meal together. And read this passage and say, how else do you read it? I say, unless you want to tell me to my face that you're no longer a Christian. Otherwise, I can't talk with you, associate with you, eat with you. This is it. This is goodbye. And it's killing me to say this to you. You think there's any bone in my body that enjoys doing that? To walk away from these friendships of years, some of the funnest people in my life. But I go, you know, God, I don't want to do this. I don't even know if I agree with this, but I'm a follower of you. And my hope is that someday those guys will look back and go, man, Francis did what he hated doing, what he didn't feel like doing, in order to honor God. Maybe I should do the same. I don't want to leave my sin, but I've had an example of someone who was willing to even let go of a friendship For the sake of honoring God. Because they believe so much that this is a God-centered world. Now, for those who are visiting, I, man, weird weekend for you to come. But honestly, I think you understand this better than the people who go to the church. I think you in your heart are going, amen. And some of the churchgoers are angry about this. Because you're going, man, I've been waiting for the church to address its own hypocrisy. But here's what I don't want you to leave worried about. Because some people, if you're visiting, you're not a Christian. You don't call yourself a Christian. I don't want you to go home and think, okay, well, then i got to get my life together before I become a Christian. I better get my life together before I get baptized. You guys, if you're going to wait for that, it's never going to happen. Okay? Because the Bible teaches that it doesn't matter what your past is. Don't you understand? I don't care how many people you've slept with. I don't care how many people you've killed. I don't care what you've done in life. You can be forgiven today. It's all wiped away. That's the grace of God. I mean, the Bible says you come that way and you recognize that you've sinned against God. And you recognize that God loved you so much that Jesus already paid that penalty on the cross for you. And the Bible says you can be forgiven. You can come up here and get baptized regardless of what you did this week. God's forgiveness is that great. It's that huge. And it's when you get baptized, it's when you give your life to Jesus that God's Spirit comes inside of you. Now the Holy Spirit of God comes into you and He empowers you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Many of us in this room are testimony of that. You're going, man, you know the way I used to live, and then God came into my life, and man, I had the power to get rid of this, and I'm so glad I'm through with that old life. And man, how great it is to know God and His power to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Man, that's that's the truth. And we want you to experience that. And then you walk on this journey with us, a bunch of imperfect people, that are striving for this perfection, striving to live a life that's honoring to the Lord and having our lives revolve around Him. We would love for you to experience that. And you can experience that today, and I want to make sure you understand that.
2: You spread out the skies Over empty space said let there be light into a dark and formless world your light was born you spread out your arms over empty hearts said let there be light into a dark and hopeless world your son was born. You made the world and saw that it was good You sent your only son for you are good What a wonderful maker What a wonderful savior Majestic your whisper, and how humble your love, with a strength like no other, and the heart of a father. How majestic your whisper. Wonderful God I have fully seen How beautiful the cross And we have only heard The faintest whispers of How great you are You made the world And saw i For God.
0: you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. There are people who gave up their lives in honor of Christ who gave us our everlasting life. Continued is the story of the many people who endured their life with faith titled The Voice of the Martyrs
3: Hello listeners this is Brian Winston with The Voice of the Martyrs The phrase the world was not worthy of them appears in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 38 In the first episode we read Hebrews 11:33 through 38 together and talked about how God's people kept their faith in different circumstances. Then what does the phrase, the world was not worthy of them actually mean? If we take a look at the King James Version, it is written of whom the world was not worthy, meaning that the world had no value for them. Many scholars believed that this phrase modified the following phrases in Hebrews 11:38, which read, they wandered in the deserts and mountains. They lived in caves, they lived in holes in the ground, in other words, because the world had no value for them, they resided in deserts and mountains, caves and underground tunnels. Yet, what I would like to focus on is the reason why the world was not worthy of them. The world had continuously attempted to separate them from their faith, but because the world itself was worthless, none of the measures actually worked. If they put their values in the world, they would have given in to the enemy's threats and eventually abandon their faith. Then how can we keep our faith? By putting our values in heaven rather than on earth. Today I would like to introduce more people of faith of whom the world was not worthy of. What values did they hold so that the world could not conquer them? In 2007, less than a decade ago, there was a horrendous incident in Turkey. Turkey is in fact very significant from a biblical sense and Kara, the capital of Turkey, is where ancient Galatia used to stand. And Turkey covers Asia and Ephesus where disciple Paul's missionary journey took place. The churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Antioch, and Laodicea that appear in the book of Revelation were all located in this region. However, today's Turkey is an Islamic country with 99% of its population believing in Allah. The land where disciple Paul's tears and heart were poured out is now filled with non-believers, and keeping faith in Jesus Christ means putting your life at risk. In such dangerous land, the holy movement to reclaim the lost souls still persists. Many missionaries are staying in Turkey to evangelize the land where traces of old prophets and God's story still remain. The horrendous incident that I mentioned earlier occurred to missionaries on Wednesday, April 18, 2007.
4: Tillman, a German missionary who ran Zerv publishing to spread the good news of Christ, had two federal workers, Nakati and Uger who were born into Islamic families, yet converted to Christianity. They conducted Bible studies in their office to spread the word of God. On the day of the tragedy, five armed men broke into their office, tied the three up, and began to torture them. The armed men demanded them to deny Christ, yet the three refused and lost their lives as a result. When their bodies were found, they had been stabbed over 150 times. Nakati, one of the three who lost their lives that day, used to always say, I was born a Muslim but will die a Christian. This turned out to be prophetic. Nakati was unafraid of death because he understood the value of dying a Christian. But their story did not end there. Tillman's wife Suzanne said in a TV interview, Oh God, forgive them for they know not what they do. We've been living in Malita, Turkey for nine and a half years. We came for an ordinary life. Just as Turkish people live in Germany as Muslim, we wanted to live in Turkey as Christian. I truly believe that my husband did not die in vain. He sacrificed his life for Jesus Christ. His Turkish friends too did not shed their blood in vain. This will mark a new beginning for Turkey and Malaita. I know this and I want them to know. Maybe God will start speaking to them. I want my husband to be buried in Malaita because our family lives here. My children go to school here. I do not wish to send him elsewhere. I want him to be near us. We will visit his graveyard sometimes and our daughters will want to leave flowers there. I want to look after him.
3: The world tells us to take revenge when somebody harms us. However, God tells us to love even our enemies. For the lady who forgave the murderer of her husband, the world is not worthy of her. The world is incapable of changing her values rooted in the gospel. The world also tells us to love our own life in order to save our life. Yet God tells us the opposite. We must hate our life in order to save our life and even give up our life for others. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal, says Jesus in John 12:24 and 25. The death you meet in our Lord is never in vain, Life lost for our Lord most certainly bears fruit. For Christians, their purpose is to reveal God's glory through their life. To achieve this purpose, they may even give up their life. This concludes this week's episode of The Voice of the Martyrs. Thank you for listening, and God bless.
5: To
0: Imagining Gideon in the winepress showed that as a reflection of myself, which made me feel sad in a way. To someone who is so weak and fragile, living in my stubborn ways, I heard God call out to me, I am your God, mighty hero. And by the sound of this voice ringing my heart, I felt a sense of guilt run through me. Thinking back, I've lived such a long time living for myself. Because of my weaknesses, I was not putting any effort to live for Christ. God created us, and by the blood of His precious Son, saved us from death. And I know that this is not how He would like for us to live. Gideon was very weak, small, and fragile. But God calls him a mighty hero. And this very same God creates us informs us every day and tells us, I am your God, and you are my mighty hero. He wants us to live as a mighty hero for His kingdom and for us to live out the mission that He has called us to live on this earth. Although we may seem very weak and vulnerable like Gideon, God does not look at the way we are now, but He looks at the image of what we were created to be within Him and calls us to be His mighty hero. If you are still beating wheat within the winepress, living for yourself, I invite you to join me to live for His kingdom and to reveal His glory within our lives. I hope that this next week, we may all live by the courage and confidence that God has graciously provided in our lives, and we may live as His mighty heroes in obedience. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week, and God bless.
2: The kindness of the Savior,
5: the hope.